0: To Christ, and uh, I'm sure all of us have a very unique story about how, how that was internalized and, and played out in your life. But really, all of us have something in common in that we didn't have to know everything we know about doctrine and scripture and the Lord as we do now to come to Him in the first place, right? God made it very easy for us to be saved. We didn't have to have a doctorate, we didn't have to go to seminary we could know the truth of the gospel and really be saved as easily as a hungry person can eat when they're standing before a buffet and they're given a plate and saying, you're hungry? Dig in. I mean, it's that easy to be born again. Um, Being saved by faith is that simple, but there is a lot going on when you think about the buffet picture. Um... There's a lot of planning that went into providing that food, right? There was preparation to provide that food um, healthy. The eater doesn't think about that at the time. And the eater knows how good it feels to fill his stomach with food, but really doesn't understand necessarily how the stomach works. How your taste buds work. Can anyone explain that to me? Like how does a taste bud actually do its job? We know it when they when we have one and it's hurting like the dead taste bud, but how, how saliva is how its purpose, and how your stomach, like what acids are actually in there, and how they work together, and how your stomach is talking to other parts of your body to coordinate digestion, and how waste is separated, and there's a lot that we don't understand there. And when we come to the book of Ephesians, if the gospel is like a delicious meal that we can eat, Ephesians brings out a lot of those facts that maybe we never understood before or we've forgotten about. The position that we have in Christ and how he sees us and his plans, kind of the background that we, we wouldn't know except he told us about it. And so we get to uh, see these facts that should change the way we think and should fill us with gratitude and appreciation for, wow, all that planning all that preparation has now been fulfilled, and we can enter in. So, may we uh, be transformed by the Holy Spirit as we consider what the Lord says. So, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. God has designed our bodies with such complexity, and doctors and dietitians, they, they know the function of the body, so they can prescribe medications and Um, aid people in making healthy decisions, right? That will promote the health of their bodies. And there's new discoveries in medical fields all the time. And may that be true for us too, as we study God's word, that there are new things that we discover about God and how we relate to him. And uh, it doesn't matter how many times you've read this book, the Lord has so much more than you could possibly eat. Just like when you go to a buffet and you may feel hungry enough to eat everything, but I bet there was some left that you didn't get to. And you're like, next time I'll have to try that that cobbler or something that's delicious. So praise the Lord that he gives us what we need. So this, a little background on the book, it's a letter likely written around uh, 60 to 62 AD during Paul's imprisonment. And he's writing to uh, the area in Asia Minor, Ephesus. And it was to be circulated around churches in the region. Uh, and it camps on the great themes of Christianity, namely the love of God and his work in the church. Spurgeon said this about the book. He says, the epistle to the Ephesians is a complete body of divinity. In the first chapter, you have the doctrines of the gospel. In the next, you have the experience of the Christians. And before the epistle is finished, you have the precepts of the Christian faith. In the first half, it deals primarily with doctrine or with teaching. And the second half is practical application. Well, how how do we live? How do we go from here. And Paul, as we, as we studied through the book of Acts, we saw he spent about three years in Ephesus between his second and third missionary journeys, and all of these crazy things happen where he's baptizing disciples of John, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, he's hel- he held discussions in the hall of Tyrannus for two years, and it says that everyone in Asia Minor heard the gospel, so the word of God was spreading. In fact, so many people were becoming Christians in Ephesus that there was this notable riot that the silversmiths started because people were becoming Christians and not buying their little trinkets anymore. And they're like, they're, they're, they're ruining our livelihood, these Christians. Um, and Paul ended up leaving Timothy in Ephesus to watch over the church there. And the things that he stressed in 1 Timothy 1. 1.5 was, Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and sincere faith. And he stressed this theme of love. But if you think of Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus after this point, he says, you've done many good works, you've held on to sound teaching, you've been patient, but you've left your first love. So that's really an issue that they had a lot of solid things going on. They were solid in doctrine. They understood the truth. They were really careful to follow God's word, but they had grown cold towards the Lord. And maybe this is true for you today, that your heart has cooled a bit from those early excitement, that that early excitement or the affections that you had were like, if I could do anything today, I want to spend it with God. I want to spend it with him. And We can come from that really exciting phase, it can be a phase, and become more of a routine or uh, almost like a chore, like it's a machine rather than a relationship that's growing. So may this study kindle and fan into flames a love in our heart for God and appreciation for all he's done. You guys ready? Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's called as an apostle by the will of God. He's one that God called to, he had sent to bring the gospel to Gentiles. And it wasn't Paul's decision. It wasn't his choice. He wasn't giving this his own uh, title, but God had called him to do this role. And because God called him, he rejoiced to fulfill that, to do everything God called him. And this word will, where it says by the will of God, that's defined determination, choice, special purpose, decree, or inclination. Remember that Jesus prayed, let your will be done to the Father. That God's will is best because he's good. Everything he does is right. He's merciful. Uh, His inclinations are always upright, right? There's no uh, turning with him. He's all good. And there's aspects of God's will that we can't know because God is is beyond our comprehension, really. Um, And especially in regards to timing, we struggle with the the restraints of time, God being outside of time and having a plan, and we are really constrained by time. And uh, But he has revealed his will in the Bible with his commands, his character, prophecies that have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled at the appointed time. Paul was God's chosen, so are all the saints, all those who trust in Christ, all who have been born again. You have been chosen by God, specially, that you would follow him, that you would be born again. And and God's will is not for anyone to perish, but for all to come to the Lord in faith. So Paul employs this common greeting, grace to you and peace from the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace and peace are connected with each other. There's no way to peace with God without the grace of God. We need the grace of God, that favor that we don't deserve to have peace with God. And this word, peace, God's the only source of it because it's Irene which is to join, by implication, prosperity, to make one again. So it's not just two parties that are now uh, neutral towards one another or on friendly terms. It's to bring back together as one, to join together, to make a connection. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled Neither let it be afraid. Say every skirmish and military conflict that's going on in the world now, let's say it comes to an end. But does that mean that people will have peace with one another or even within themselves? Because we can be conflicted. We can be really undecided about what's right or what's wrong, really unsure about what God is saying or what we're to do. And the world, it gives us a temporary ceasefire it's written on paper, and it can be easily undone. Someone can breach the terms. and um, So these, the peace the world gives is temporary. It's external. It can't touch the heart. It can't make you at rest. But Jesus, that's the peace he gives. That's the peace he leaves with us. Peace with God. We were once divided from him, and now we've been joined as one with him. The most prosperous people can be filled with conflict and trouble. The Bible says in Isaiah 57 that there is no peace for the wicked. There's a comparison there. It says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. So it's like there's just an unsettled feeling and a sense that just like the tide, the waves keep crashing, right? There's no, there's no uh, pause, and that's how it is apart from Christ. There's a searching, there's a need, there's a need that's unmet. Now, does your heart bear any resemblance to that? Because even as a child of God, we can get into that rut where we are not, we, God has offered us rest, but we're not experiencing that rest. Because even in the midst of trials and trouble and pain and suffering, we can find rest in Jesus Christ. Because what does he give? He says, my peace, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives in limits. There's a limit to what the world gives. There's a time restraint, but his is eternal and complete and whole, a hundred percent. And that's one thing that trials do for us is if we're in a trial and we still experience the peace of God, we can say, that's just from God. This is evidence that my conversion is true, that I am following Jesus and I want to keep following him. Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now that is quite a sentence, isn't it? (laughs) Very meaty. We could just spend the whole day talking about that. Uh, But God is blessed, and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy to be praised. We want to be blessed by God, and we have an idea of what those blessings look like. Usually, those blessings are more on the temporal side. We think about having finances and a home and, and, and healed relationships here on earth. But realize that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ right now, whether you feel it or not. If you're in Christ, it says who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is past tense. This does not say he's going to bless you. It says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So he's already given that to us. It's to be appropriated through faith. Spiritual blessings, they're uh, eternal. They transcend all temporal blessings, all the temporary things of this world. And it's God's good pleasure to not only give us the kingdom of God, but that's our current spiritual position, is in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where you are spiritually. We think about heaven as a place we're going to go someday when our bodies give out or God calls us home. But the reality is, in a spiritual sense, you are in the heavenly places if you're in Christ. It's like you're already in the presence of God forever, has already begun. That's already begun for you. And you're like, hold on, wait a second. It just doesn't feel that way. When we look at the world when we see how we're feeling and how what the things we have to deal with, this requires faith, right? For us to believe that that's the case. But this is the reality. We have safety. We have security in Christ. And I want you to pay attention to how many times that that phrase is used in Christ. All the things that we have in Christ because he is our life. Everything we have is from him and in him. So if we're in him through faith, when we've trusted in him, we've repented of our sin, we've placed our faith in him, just like walking to the buffet table and go, you know what? I'm hungry and I'm going to eat. I'm going to feed on what's being provided. And God has provided a savior, the living bread who's come down from heaven. And he says, anyone who eats of me, you're going to live forever. And he gave his his body and his blood on Calvary that we could be redeemed and we could be reconciled with God. And because of the world that we're living in, because of our failing health, because of the issues and the, the things that are so out of our control, we don't feel like this is true. But God's revealing this to you today, that this is the reality. Your reality is likely a temporal and superficial reality, but this is the reality that we are in Christ. So being in Christ is the key to receiving all the blessings of Christ because we have him. He's the source of all good, and like that, that branch is connected to the vine and is fruitful, so when we're in him, we have life, eternal life. And it was always part of God's plan for us to come to Christ, to be his chosen even before the earth was created. Uh, When we speak of predestination, there's a bit of baggage that's connected with that word. There's confusion about how God's will and how man's responsibility intersect. Like, How does that actually work? And we can read that saying it would be mistaken to say that God predestines some to heaven without their consent, and he also dooms some to hell without any hope of salvation. The Bible says clearly God's not willing. It's not his will that any should perish, but all come to repentance. The fact is not everyone is willing to trust the Lord. They are not willing to put their faith in Jesus. The doctrine of election, it says if you've been born again, it's because you have been chosen, elected, and ordained by God. Now we have elections, right? We get a bunch of people together, we go to the voting booths, we fill out papers, and someone is elected. Now just because that person's been elected to government, are they forced to serve? No. They could decide, you know, I really don't want this job. It's not what I was cut out for, I'm going to step down we see politicians do that for personal reasons or because there maybe have been a scandal or something, unfortunately. But they have the right, they have the freedom to exercise that position or they can lay that aside and say, I want, I am going to step away from what I've been elected to do. And God has done everything to save every soul that will trust in him. McGee wrote in his commentary, men are not lost because they have not been elected. They are lost because they are sinners, and that's the way they want it. That's the way they have chosen. The free will of man is never violated because of the election of God. The lost man makes his own choice. A great example of foreknowledge or election, we see that in Acts chapter 27. You guys probably remember as we went through that, Paul's on a ship. It's caught in a storm. He and uh, 200 and 70-plus people are in fear for their lives. They're they're throwing the cargo overboard. All hope was lost, but Paul prayed, and God revealed to him that every single person on that ship would be saved. Some people couldn't swim, but the promise of God was everyone on that ship is going to be saved, but you're going to lose the cargo, and you're going to run aground, and the ship is going to be lost. So, on the 14th day, members of the crew... They're supposed to be putting down the anchor. Instead, they were lowering down the skiff because being run aground in a ship is a death sentence. That's not a safe place to be. You want to be away from that wreck as the waves are crashing into it, as it's being broken apart by the violence of the waves. Paul, he goes to them in Acts twenty-seven thirty-one. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So does that contradict the promise of God, that they would be saved, that they would all survive? Not at all. But God had a condition that needed to be met. They needed to remain in the ship until the ship ran aground. Then they could be guaranteed salvation. So they had to meet his conditions. And that required faith. Because those sailors, they did not want to be on that ship. They knew better. But see, in the hands of God, according to his promise, they were saved. They were spared. Jesus did not just make the gospel available to a chosen few... But it says in 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus is a payment not just for those who will receive, but even for the whole world, a world that will reject him. But we have that choice placed before us. And it says there, I love this, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. We are not saved because we chose God. That's not why we're saved. We're not saved because we have repented. If, if it was just God's election that saves us, then Jesus didn't have to die on Calvary. We're born again, it's evidence that Jesus has chosen us, right? When we follow Jesus, we can know he chose me first. He came to me. He revealed himself to me. He has made me accepted in the beloved by his grace. And this word accepted is so cool because it's only used twice in scripture. It means to grace, to endue with special honor. It's like using grace as a verb. And the only other time it's used is when the angel came to Mary and said in Luke 1, 28, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. So rejoice, accepted one, highly favored one. God chose Mary to bear the Son of God, and God has highly favored us to receive him by faith that we've been accepted in the Beloved. That means to show us grace. Can we show God grace? No, because he deserves everything, right? He's perfect in every way. We can't really show grace to God. He shows grace to us because we are unworthy. We don't merit any favor whatsoever. And so he accepts us. We really don't accept him. We talk about, I've heard people say, you accept Jesus? Well, we receive him through faith. But we can't accept him like he's accepted us. Because he's the judge. He makes that decision. But he's made us accepted, highly favored among his beloved people. So you're just as special to God as Mary, whom he chose, the one person out of all people that he chose to bear, Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome that he would love us like that. Ephesians 1 verse 7, In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, by which he, made, which he made to abound toward us all in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that at the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him." Again, many times in that passage, in him, right? We see that if we're in him, we have redemption. We have forgiveness. According to the riches of his grace, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. According to that good pleasure. And he's gathered us as one in him. He's united us with himself and others. God does not give out of grace, a limit, limited amount out of grace. Like when you go to the shops, you open your wallet and you have so much cash. Well, you have to give out of the cash that you have and it's a limited amount. But he gives according to. So he has a limitless supply of grace and favor that he gives us and it's according to that that he gives, not just out of it, which is really awesome. Now, is there something in us that wants to think there's a redeeming quality. Like, there's some sort of redeeming quality in me. I mean, I'm a pretty multifaceted person. I can contribute here, and I I have this understanding there, and I've accomplished this over here. So there's got to be something that's decent, you know, better than somebody else if we're going to use each other as a comparison. But that, no, that's not what the Bible says at all. None of us deserves to be redeemed or forgiven. None of us deserves to be called into the body of Christ. None of us deserves to be accepted. We have only sinned. We have only wandered. We have only betrayed what God has done for us. And we think, you know, it's not right that someone should suffer. True. If they have done nothing wrong, Jesus suffered, and he had done nothing wrong. He took our suffering upon himself. That wasn't fair. That was grace. The Bible says that because of our sin, we deserve to suffer eternal torment. That is the righteous payment for our sin. That's what we deserve. And yet he has trumped that by his grace to make us accepted. The crazy thing is, is we can start humble and we can rejoice in what God has provided but then we can become a bit arrogant and proud and, and, and almost feel like, all right, I've got it from here. I've got this thing handled. I'm sufficient in myself to do what I need to do because I have God. But that, that's so sad when we come to that place. Think of King Saul. At one point, he was humble, but he became proud when he walked into that kingdom that God had given him. The fact that God has chosen us, the fact that he has accepted us should foster in us great humility. Like, why would he choose me? It's not because of me. It's because of him. He's so good to me. He's so faithful. Colossians 1.14, it says of Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22, it says, under the law, nearly everything that was going to be purified needed the shedding of blood. So God, on the basis of Jesus and his sacrifice, that his blood has now washed us clean from sin, we are forgiven because that demand of the law was now met through Christ. Now, the blood of Jesus, it's not worthy of praise in a mystical sense any more than his hands that worked miracles or uh, the feet that carried him from place to place or his saliva that he used to anoint the, the eyes of the blind. The, the cross of wood, the nails that were used, the crown of thorns, they're not to be reverenced as if there was any power in them to save. All power, all grace is in Christ. That's where our life comes from, in Jesus. And we are one with him by his grace. And so he's made known to us, it says, the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery here. It's spoken of something that was unknown to us, that was known by God, and something that cannot have been discovered by us, that was revealed by God. So it's something that you didn't see coming. You didn't know was possible. You didn't even know it was a need. And yet God has supplied that need. We have behind me a little illustration of uh, planning and preparation that perhaps caught you a bit by surprise. So I and the board have been in discussion for over six months on doing this project, and I started tackling it with others this week. Uh, and some of you have seen it and go like, oh, that's horrible, and why would you do that? And other people are like, oh, that's cool, and it could be good, and, or whatever you think. But let's say you'd never seen it in this state, and you came to the church, first-time visitor uh, a month from now, when, God willing, it'll be totally done, and there'll be a door and it'll be painted, and it'll just be blending in. You would probably think that it was always like that. You wouldn't know anything about the blue wall. You wouldn't know that the the projector actually used to be over there, and and the whole band was on the left side, that there's been a total change in the way that it's laid out. You had no idea, and so we as Gentiles, we've come into this thing a bit late. We've come when the wall's already up, The the thing's been moved. We're thinking, yeah, this is how it always was. But it wasn't always like this. Because God called Abraham to follow him and said, your descendants, you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be your God. And God brought that nation out of Egypt. And he promised the Messiah, the one who's going to come and die for the sins of the world, is going to come to the tribe of Judah. And now Jesus has come. Jesus has come and he lived a perfect life. He did those miracles He did mighty signs and wonders among the people. He preached righteousness and repentance. And he went to the cross. He died and he rose again and his blood has been shed. Now he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The Jews rejected Christ and so they took the message to the Gentiles and that's us. So we've come into this late and we maybe think, oh yeah, it was always this way, but it's not. And you may think that with a limited understanding of, well, this is what it is to be a Christian. It's to go to church and it's to do these things and to help others. And But but you really don't realize who you are in Jesus because you didn't realize that you're actually seated in the heavenlies and that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing and that you've been accepted in the beloved. The same grace that God extended to Mary and other believers, he has extended to you. That same desire, it, He's is saying, will you receive that? Will you believe it? What the Jews and the Gentiles never saw coming, God did. This mystery that's now been revealed, something God had planned from the foundations of the earth, it has come to pass. It has been fulfilled in Jesus. And we are in this exciting time where we get to share that. Instead of building a wall, what Jesus did is he broke down a barrier that was between God and man that man didn't even know about. They were heading to destruction and had no idea. But he has brought salvation and unity and oneness by his grace. The Gentiles didn't even know there was one God. They worshipped heaps of gods. But then God revealed, I am the one true God. And the way to God is through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. They didn't even know there was a barrier between them and God. But Jesus has broken that barrier. God revealed the gospel in the fullness of time, in that time that God ordained from the beginning that he would reveal his son. He's so patient. Praise him for his patience. We can be a bit impatient about wanting to to get off this planet, but the Lord, he knows. He is gracious to us and he's gracious to others. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So those of us who are now in the heavenlies, that we would be united with people on earth who also will be going to the heaven that he has provided. Now this dispensation, it's not so much a time, it means administration or economy. So depending, that's the dispensation in which we live. This is the economy. At one point there was, uh, you know, the temple in Israel and people would have to bring goats and oxen and lambs for sacrifice and keep the feast. Well, we are now in a gospel dispensation Where this is the economy, he commands all men everywhere to repent because he is going to judge the world in righteousness. And so this is the economy, this is the administration of how we obtain salvation. And God wants us to find our identity not in the temporal things, not in what is going to pass away, not in what we can accomplish, but in who he is, what he has done as believers united in Christ. And we're joined together with the Old and New Testament saints because we are one in him, and we're seated with them. I've spent four dec- over four decades on this planet. The, the only place I really belong perfectly is in Christ. That's the place where I find acceptance and life that I couldn't, I couldn't have anywhere else. And it's so lovely because we've all been there, right, where you try to do things to fit in. You do outward things to try to align yourself with other people so there's a sense of agreement. But it's always superficial. It's always temporary. There's always a limit to it. There's always something that you find out about somebody or something they find out about you that can sour that supposed unity that you once shared or, or how people change right people can change and uh, i've been part of organizations that they have a, a, a paradigm shift where they're heading one direction and then go you know what this is going to be more profitable to go in this direction and you go ah you know what at one point we were united but now i just feel like you're going in a different direction and we can have that in relationships too right where you're not on the same page anymore but we don't just try to fit in with Jesus. We can't fit in. We've been accepted. We've been made one with him through faith in him. And it's not through outward conformity, but because he's transformed us on the inside. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it does feel good, doesn't it, to be invited and included. Is that important to you? That you'd, people would care if you're around. You, that you would receive an invitation. That people will want to be around you. That, yeah, people want you around. You ever felt like, you know, they really don't want me around. They kind of would like me to be somewhere else. It doesn't feel great. But in Christ, being invited, being included, being wanted, being loved, it's all true. It's all undergirded and strengthened with the love of God and the grace of God. We've been accepted. Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Again, in him. It's quite prevalent here. In him we have ordained... Obtained an inheritance. Again, past tense. It's not saying we will obtain an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. It's true that the fulfillment of our inheritance will be when we are clothed in those glorious bodies, incorruptible, undefiled, in the presence of God forever. But for us, new life, eternity, it's already dawned. Why don't you turn, please, to 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. We'll see what God has provided for us and why he is blessed. And in him, we are blessed. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. We'll just stop there. So we have this reservation, this heavenly booking and where are we now? In the heavenlies. We can... Walk in the light of this inheritance now. Now, an inheritance, if you say, oh, yes, there, there's a, a living testimony or a will, and the, the person has passed away, and there's an inheritance. Now, is that inheritance just for anybody? Well, it's going to be for someone very specific who's mentioned in that legal paperwork, right? It's for someone in particular, not just anybody, It's for the person who has passed and had written the will will to have the executor make sure that the person who is to receive it receives that. Now, people on earth, we receive an inheritance of money or homes or stuff or debt passed down, right? That's things that are stored or used or, or passed on to others, ultimately, the cool thing about the inheritance we have for God is we get to, u- we get to enjoy it together because it's not like he's bequeathed something to us. We have oneness with him and all the blessings of the kingdom in Christ are ours. We're co-heirs with Christ. He is our inheritance. We are his inheritance. I mean, if you're a God and you could have any inheritance you want, isn't it remarkable that he would choose us? Say, if I could have anything, because he could make anything he wants, but he wants people who love him to be his inheritance, people who he has redeemed by his grace. So God, he predestined salvation according to his will. He determined how that salvation would be received and entered into by grace through faith, that that's the way of righteousness. And for a purpose, it says there in the passage, To the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 2, if you were to go forward, I'll just read it to you. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, he says, He's raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're seated with Christ, so that in the ages to come, for all eternity, He'll be glorified and acknowledged for our salvation through Jesus. Have you ever gone to a golf course or university or a school where there's a little plaque? You know, sometimes an old church near, under a stained glass window, there's like a little brass inscription and it says, you know, dedicated to whoever and they provided the money to build this thing or that wing of the campus. It's called after someone's name because as a philanthropist, they, they contributed funds and so it's been built, and, and you know, when I see that and I don't know that person, there's really no connection for me, but I bet if you're on that, you know, passing by that bench on the golf course and there's some, a volunteer just sitting there and you're walking by and go, you know what, let me tell you why this park exists. Let me, let me give you some insight into the history of what used to be here and how things have changed. Well, that would be a bit more engaging, right, uh, to have someone explain what has happened here. Now, that's who the Jews were to the Gentiles because they were the ones who first trusted in Christ, as it says there. We who have first trusted in Christ, the Jews first trusted in Christ, and they brought the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. And now we fit into that role as ambassadors for Christ, that we are those living eyewitnesses who are seated with Christ, who have received every spiritual blessing in Christ, who are to share the knowledge of Christ with others. So they too could know and receive. They could know about that wall that Jesus has broken down and that way of salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And this is one of our roles. We are partakers of Christ and his kingdom. How will people know about Jesus and his promises, about what he has accomplished, unless somebody tells them. Unless somebody is living out that life that is reconciled with God. May he help us and cause us to seize those opportunities. Maybe see opportunities we didn't see as an opportunity. It was kind of a bummer. But now it's an opportunity. We can rejoice in that. Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Paul's writing is letter largely to a Gentile audience. The, the word was first preached to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And the gospel of salvation is the word of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Just as eating food, it begins within seconds to fill the stomach, so faith in Jesus makes it a new creation. We don't have to know everything to be a new creation. We don't have to know everything to be born again and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by him to be fruitful. And it says, once we believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit came inside of you. He now lives, He has taken up residence in your life. And maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you weren't like, hey, if I believed, well, it's just the cause and effect. When you eat food, well, it goes into your stomach. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes within you. To, and it says, we've been sealed as the guarantee of our inheritance. That's a down payment that God is going to make good on his promise of salvation to you. So you are marked, you are sealed, you are filled, you have been baptized into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. When Laura and I wanted to buy a house in the States, we were pre-approved for a loan, we went to the bank, and then we put down a, a, a down payment, right? to say, we are going to make good on this 30-year mortgage. Uh, Now they have something called Afterpay. Anyone here ever used Afterpay? Oh, well, there is at least one. Well, anyway, Afterpay is this app that allows you to purchase things um, with four installments. And as long as you pay fortnightly the amount, you can get the item right away. And you have no service fees or anything, as long as you pay it off every fortnightly. So it's like God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a first installment saying that he is going to make good. Now, the interesting thing about like afterpay is people will use that if they don't have, they don't want to spend all their money. That's why we get loans as well. We might have the money in the bank, but it's more convenient. It would stretch us too thin. So we decide I'm going to get a loan to cover what I don't want to pay now and I'll, I can afford it. But see, that's usually because we can't afford to pay it all up front. Now, what's different about what God's done is he paid it all. It's all been paid with Jesus on the cross. It's not like there's still anything left to be done, like we need to add to it, or or there's something more he needs to do to save us. He has paid it in full. But because of our fallen condition, because we're in these bodies of flesh, there's only so much of that inheritance we can receive and walk in. And I think a lot of us, if God would give us the, I guess, the kingdom of heaven and the power of God... As a liquid asset, we might be a lot like the prodigal who received all that cash and he just went his own way. He actually walked away from God. So God knows what we can handle. God is good to not overwhelm us um, with either things that he wants to change in us or or what we need to do. He will show us. He is faithful and he'll do it in us. He's going to save us because he has promised Only God knows when our days will be fulfilled, when we'll be called to be home with him forever. And as it stands now, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has made us accepted in the beloved because he's merciful and gracious to us. Could you please turn to Revelation 2, starting in verse 2, and we'll close with this. I mean, you read this, what a... What a lofty position we have in Christ. What blessings that, it, it really, a lot of it just goes right over our heads, right? It's kind of like when you're a child and your parents are talking interest rates and the stock market and investments, and you're all, whoosh, what's for dinner? Like, have no idea. It's like, hold on, Dad, you need to make some good investments because I, I hope to, you know. I hope that there's a home or some good investments coming my way, you know, in a selfish sense. But as a kid, you just don't, you don't really get it. And I think as a Christian, we just really don't get it. And God has these lofty, awesome truths. It's a reality. And he's saying, this is the truth. This is what is real. And we don't, we don't know unless he tells us. So this was their position in Christ, right? Paul's like, Ephesians, get this. This is who you are in Christ. This is what God has given you. But just because God gave them that, it did not mean they would live up to their potential. They didn't walk in everything that God had provided and supplied. They missed out on loving as God would have them. Revelation 2, verse 2 through 5 Jesus said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you you repent. It seemed like the church of Ephesus was going really well until about verse 4 because he's saying, hey, you've done this, your labor, your patience, and that's a fruit of the Spirit. You've tested, you've persevered, you've labored, you haven't given up. But I have this against you. Jesus had something against them. And may he show us when... He has something against us too because we have left our first love. We've become a bit mechanical. We've overlooked him and what he's provided. We can be soundly saved, and yet, God, there's things that we need to repent of. Has your love towards God, has your love towards others grown cold? And he says, remember. Remember how it used to be. Not just how you've experienced it before in the past, but remember from where you have fallen that you were seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You have all this. You've been accepted in the beloved. Such grace has been poured out on you, yet you've grown cold towards me. You've, uh, so he says, remember, remember and repent. And how good it is for us to have that option supplied for us, that when we repent, we can be restored. And may the Lord, I pray, that he would bring us to a love of God that's greater than any love of God we've ever experienced in the past. Even when we go back to the early days where there was, uh, let's say, where the, the, our hearts just burst with excitement and affection for God and delight in the things of God. May God bring us to a place beyond what we've ever experienced as we recognize who he is and all he's done and that we are in Christ and most blessed. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have supplied your spirit, that you have sealed us, that you've guaranteed our salvation by the, on the basis of what you've done through the shed blood of Christ. Thank you for giving us the ability to repent by your grace. And Lord, it's not in us to repent, but you help us. Thank you, Lord, that you have done everything for our salvation, that it was planned uh, before the foundations of the earth. You had it established. It's going to happen. It is happening. You have already saved, and you are saving. And we desire, Lord, to be used by you. Keep us from leaving our first love and draw us close to you, Lord. Thank you again for the opportunity to love you and to be Uh, rejoicing in your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.